Well, let me just say, this is me, not the Lord speaking. I believe that daylight savings time is an abomination. (laughs) And judging from the rest of you, all the praise yawning that I'm seeing out in the congregation, you agree with me as well. So let's pray for strength in the Lord. Obviously, if he has brought us here and we feel fatigued, that means there's probably something special he wants us to hear and he needs us to perk our ears up for. So let's, let's pray for strength. Lord, we come to you recognizing that you are the supreme sovereign of the universe. All glory is due to you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that even in our weakened state, you would allow us to bring glory to your name. That, Lord, we would hear your word, that we would obey by faith, and that, Lord, we would recognize that you are the good, gracious God who has come to the earth to save his people. And so, Lord, we pray, give us clean hearts, give us clean hands, Lord, so that we might live our lives in holiness and obedience to you. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Who would turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4? Now, in Genesis 3, we saw how Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world. We saw the key factors leading up to it. The man and the woman were placed in an ideal environment. They were given grand purpose in life as they had the privilege of stewarding and ruling the earth, and they had an intimate relationship with one another and with their God. The Lord demonstrated his great love and care towards them, not only by providing them this wonderful environment, but he also warned them of the consequence of violating his one prohibition to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He told them if they did this, they would die. And despite such goodness from God, both Adam and Eve chose to rebel and eat the forbidden fruit. Now, we made two observations regarding this. First, this wasn't just about eating a piece of fruit. It was much more than that. This was about control. Who gets to decide what is best for the man and the woman, the creatures or their creator? There was a reason the tree had its name, knowledge of good and evil. If the humans obeyed, they would only know the goodness of God and never experience evil. But rather than allow God to rule over them, they made the intentional choice to say, no, we know better than you, God. We will choose what we think is right for us. Our second observation was that this rebellion brought about a death sentence upon all humanity. Death is more than just the cessation of life. It is also a curse. Because men and women choose their own path, their relationship to the earth, their relationship to one another, and their relationship to God has been cursed. What God intended for us to be pleasurable, our work, our our interaction with one another, our communion with God, is now a toil. And we continue to make matters worse as we sow the seeds of sin in our lives. We persist to declare and to live as though we know better than God and we contaminate the world with our sinful decisions. It is a condition that exists to this present day. But we also noted last week that while this is the bad news, the good news is that God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him, to one another, and to the earth through his son, Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus took upon the curse himself at the cross and gave us his right standing before God. Now, we'll need to return to that theme once again before the end of today's sermon. 
Now, after such painful consequence of rebelling against God, one would think that Adam and Eve, along with their descendants, would have learned their lesson. You would think every human being would repent and say, you warned us. You told us that this would happen. Every word from you has turned out to be true. Therefore, I will obey and submit to you because I know that you know what is best for us. That seems logical, right? Consult the one who is the creator of all things. Quit taking matters into your own hands because you continue to mess things up. But as we shall see in this last episode of the book of Adam in Genesis chapter 4, that is not what occurs. Rather, we will find out just how depraved mankind becomes. It is swift and it is sudden. So allow me to tell you where we're headed in the sermon this morning. I want to cover this chapter 4 in four, cha- uh, four sections. I want to show you what we have in this chapter is actually a repeated pattern of what we saw in chapter 3. This is the same song, just a different verse. Second, I want to do a deeper examination of Cain here. This is necessary because I think we'll find characteristics in him that we can all relate to. My fear is is that we would dismiss Cain as a petulant child and not see the complexity of the human condition. And after that, we'll see the ongoing consequences of sin in the world. Spoiler alert, things get worse, not better. And that will be our third section. And with the last part, just like our good God, he does not leave us as he found us. There is hope in the end. So let us proceed here into the next chapter. Chapter 4 is very similar to chapter 3, just different characters who bring about more death into the world. Adam and Eve are fulfilling the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. They have offspring, and the first of these is Cain. The Hebrew word Cain sounds like the Hebrew word forgotten. Eve declares she has gotten a man with Yahweh's help. No doubt the childbearing process was painful and she sensed the Lord's help as she endured it for the very first time. I can only imagine such a scene. No midwife, no epidurals, no one who had ever been through such an experience before. I have no doubt it was only God's promises that this process would be natural and would happen like this that gave her hope as she gave birth to her firstborn. And then we're told that she had her secondborn child, Abel. His name is an interesting choice. It means vapor, perhaps a bit of foreshadowing here. I am sure the Apostle James had Abel in mind when he wrote that life is just a vapor in his New Testament letter. But there is no pronouncement by the parents here, no explanation of his name, no mention of having the Lord's help. Rather, Abel's first description is his relationship to his sibling, Cain. He is Cain's brother. The word brother is used seven times between verse 2 and verse 11. The narrator is highlighting this relationship, this bond between the two. The two men have two different professions. Cain is a farmer and Abel is a shepherd. And both feel an obligation to bring an offering before Yahweh. Now, it's important for us to emphasize at this point, there is no Bible. There is no law yet. There is no history of the people of Israel. There is no wisdom literature to consult how to raise children. However, we're about to learn there is still access to God, limited though it may be. They do have the sweet communion, or they do not have the sweet communion of the garden, but it would appear that they had some type of meeting with their God. Each man brings fruits of their labors to Yahweh as an offering, and God rejects Cain's offering. 
We're not necessarily told why here. The one clue we have is in verse 4 that Abel brought his firstfruits or firstborn sheep to Yahweh. We're not told that Cain brought the first of his fruits, nor are we told the quality of what we brought. We might, or he might have brought what he thought was his best, not necessarily the first here. Remember, there is no law that prescribes how things are to be done. What we do know of the differences is from the book of Hebrews. We are told there that Abel presented his offering in faith. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. In some way, Cain's offering lacked faith. And Paul writes in Romans 14 that in matters of worship particularly, whatever is not done in faith is sin. Cain may have unknowingly sinned here. And here is where we begin to find our familiarity with chapter 3. God gives Cain knowledge of the good. What Cain must do about it now and the consequences if he refuses. This does not bring relief to the man. Rather, Cain is angry about the situation, and he tries to hide his thoughts from God. But once again, the Lord condescends to speak to a man. He identifies Cain's emotion and the cause. Cain is angry because his offering was rejected. He was slighted in front of his brother. But note that God encourages him at verse 7, there is a means of repentance. If you do well, will you not be accepted? But now, like the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there is a test. God warns Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to dominate the man. But instead, Cain must rule over it. He must exercise discipline. Just like the test of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in chapter 3, here is what you must do to be obedient, and if you don't, here are the consequences. Master your control over sin, or it will master you. And of course, Cain allows sin to dominate him and he murders his brother. I find it fascinating that the first human death is not from a natural disaster, disease, or old age. It is at the hands of another human being. How quickly has humanity become depraved? And like chapter 3, when Adam and Eve tried to hide their nakedness from the Lord, Cain tries to hide his sin from God. The Lord knows precisely what has happened. When he asks in verse 9, where is Abel your brother? This is for Cain's benefit, a chance to repent at what he has done. He could say, Lord, I did not listen to you. I did not obey and master self-control. Instead, I allowed my anger to fester, and in my rage, I plotted and murdered my brother. Have mercy on me. But that is not what Cain did. He denied his sin. He lied. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You can almost hear the disdain in his voice when we read those words, can't you? And now, Cain must face the consequences of his sin. And it's simply not a life for a life. It is an extension of the curse, just like his parents in chapter 3, verse 17. Cain must inherit the further consequences of his rebellion. Verse 10, And the Lord said, What have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. For Cain, the ground is further cursed. His purpose as a farmer has been taken away from him. He will no longer be able to plant roots literally. He is doomed to wander in a nomadic lifestyle. He must find another means of providing for himself on his own. And then, just like his parents, who were banished from the Garden of Eden, in verse 16, Cain is banished from the presence of the Lord. He is pushed further east. The word nod means wandering. He is abandoned to the land of wandering, probably where there are no other human inhabitants yet. Whatever access Cain had to Yahweh appears to have ended permanently for both he and his descendants after this. We'll see a little bit later that this will be Cain's choice too. He never seeks repentance in the story. When it comes to personal sin, Cain's descendants will now reap what they have sowed without restraint. It's the same old song and dance. Sin drives humanity away from their creator, and rather than repent and return to him, we just continue to move further and further apart. We do this to ourselves. I'm often asked why I believe the Bible to be true. And while I could give you a a host of apologetic data, such as textual criticism or archaeological evidence and so on, the main reason I believe it to be true is that I see so much of the truth of Scripture within myself. The characters portrayed in the Bible are deeply flawed and complex. Cain is the same way. And it would be wrong to view him as though he was some impulsive brat. Let's note a few things here in the story. These are good. You might want to write some of these down. First, I already mentioned that Cain thought that he could hide his thoughts and actions from an omnipotent and omniscient God. Certainly by this point, he should have known that God knows all. It's futile to hide one's thoughts or actions from God. Now, we don't have K-group this week, but if we had had K-group and I was writing the questions, I would ask, what difference would it make if we practiced the presence of God 24-7, knowing that God is always with us, always watching? What would that do to us? If we could get in our minds and our our thought lives realizing that God is always with us and watching, would that change your behavior? Second, when God refuses the fruit and vegetable offering here, the thing that is glaring to me is that Cain never asks why. Cain never questions why it was unacceptable. He assumes that he is always righteous. He assumes his offering was good enough based on the quality he presents rather than the spirit of how he does it. He does not trust his creator or his instructions. He trusts only in himself. Third, at no point does Cain show any fear of God in this story. He fears others that might seek him out, which, by the way, shows that there's more people that were present on the earth at this time. I'll explain a little bit later who I think those are. He also fears death, that they would snuff out his life just as he did Abel. He expects some type of retribution from others, but not from God. 
There is no fear of God demonstrated at any point in his interaction with Yahweh. We do the same. We tend to fear consequences rather than fear the Lord. Fourth, there is only despair in Cain's reaction. My punishment is greater than I can bear, he exclaims in verse 13. There is no remorse over killing his brother who was a lifelong companion. There is no cry for mercy from God, only an attitude of self-importance. What about me, God? This is what sin does to us. We don't think God is present and aware when we commit our sin. Every action we take is right in our own eyes. We do not seek God, nor do we really fear Him over our own selfish desires. We're not even conscious that that we should be remorseful before a holy God. We are self-indulgent creatures, every one of us. And I'll be the first to confess, this describes me when I sin. It's why I have so much confidence in the veracity of the Bible. I see myself in this. And now we see the state of his descendants. Cain has no possession or profession to leave as a legacy to his family. He passes along only his hatred. Cain marries and he has a son. And the first question naturally is, is where did his wife come from? Well, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we learn that Adam and Eve had many descendants. They were created as adults and could produce offspring immediately. We learn that Adam had been on the earth for 130 years before Seth is born as the next image bearer. There is no reason to think that the world could not have already had hundreds of other individuals yet. So I believe Cain's wife would have been either a a sister, a niece, or a cousin. And yes, in our eyes, that is gross. But three factors lead me to that conclusion. First, there was the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, specifically to the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, and their prodigy were instructed to do this in order to fill the earth. I do not believe that God created other human beings alongside of them after they sinned, though I know some scholars that do. If there was such a possibility, the Bible is certainly silent about it, and it would seem to defy passages like when Paul instructed in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Second, and more importantly, there was no law of Moses that prohibited incestuous relationships yet. Based upon Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, I would say God intended monogamy to be the norm, but there was no law yet against who your partner should be outside of gender. Even Paul would admit in Romans 5, verse 13, sin is not counted where there is no law. For God's original purpose, this would have been or would not have been considered sin. And third, based on the long lifespans of the pre-flood individuals, I think humans were not at risk to pass along similar genes like we have today. There seems to be a purity within their bodies that had not yet been contaminated. Sin had not had the time to cause the slow degradation of the biological processes yet. So I believe it was perfectly acceptable in those early days of humanity that they would intermarry with their relatives, but not now. We'll see it again in the days after the flood with Noah's family. What we are taught in verses 17 through 24 is that sin now grows among humanity and becomes the norm. 
Cain builds a city. Now remember, he was told not to remain in a single place, but to wander. This was direct disobedience to God. He moves further away. He obviously did not trust the word of God in verse 15, that no one would attack him. He built a city for his own protection. He also builds the city, and he names it after his son. He will honor Enoch, but he will not honor God. As part of common grace, human culture develops in the line of Cain. There is music and husbandry and metallurgy. In a moment, we'll be presented with a poem, so even literature develops. God allows human culture to flourish even in the line of Cain, but that culture and society does not seek to honor the Lord God. And in the seventh generation, verse 19, we're introduced to Lamech, who is the first human to practice polygamy. It is he who writes this poem to his two wives where he boasts of murdering someone for offending him. And he's very familiar with God's punishment from verse 15 that if anyone killed Cain, the Lord would avenge his death sevenfold. Lamech boasts that he would escalate it to 77-fold. What a lovely poem, love poem to his wives here. Perfect for a Valentine's Hallmark card. But don't miss the central point. There is no justice among the descendants of Cain. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. When we arrive at verse 24, the world seems pretty bleak. We have many more centuries of human sin yet to endure, but already we can see why God would want to take a flood to the world and wash it clean of mankind's existence. But thankfully, this is not the end of Adam's story. Adam and Eve conceive another son in verse 25. And while I believe that there were already many sons and daughters already in existence at that time, this child was divinely appointed. And Eve makes a declaration after he is named Seth. Seth means to set into place or to appoint. And she relates the birth of Seth to what God prophesied in chapter 3, verse 15, when he cursed the serpent. Remember? The Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So now Eve declares at the end of this chapter, God has appointed for me another offspring in place of Abel. She believes that Seth's line is to be different from the line of Cain. And the next chapter, verse 3, we learn that Seth's descendants will be the true image bearers of Adam, not the line of Cain. And we see in verse 26 already a difference from Cain and his children. Seth has a son, and he is named Enosh, or weakness. And this generation begins to call upon the name of Yahweh, a technical phrase that, re- uh, that refers to worshiping God. Now, don't miss that beautiful picture. Seth, the divinely appointed son, has a son whom he names weakness because he wants his son to realize he is weak and must call upon the name of the Lord. And here ends the book of Adam. Lord willing, we'll begin the book of Noah at our next gathering together when I return from vacation. But from this point in Genesis we will see the theme of Genesis 3.15 develop. 
there we saw there are two seeds, two offspring, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that will be at odds with one another. Satan will seek to usurp not only God's place on this earth, but also ours as the Lord's image bearers. He wants to rule and to dominate in our place as well. He will not share his authority with another. And he will have his own people, his own spiritual seed, in doing his will. Satan will have his own offspring among humanity to which the Lord Jesus even acknowledges. Now, this is not demon possession. This is men and women under the influence of sin. Continuous rebellion. Now, you need to see this again. Turn to John chapter 8, which we read earlier in the service. This is on page 894 of your pew Bible. And as you're doing this, I will tell you, we're going to need to return to this important passage again as it's going to continue in our study in Genesis. So much of what Jesus taught is based upon Genesis. And its truths are still significant and in place for us today. So let's start off. John chapter 12, or 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Now, earlier in John's book, Jesus said at chapter 3, verse 19, he said, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Remember, this is how sin works in us. We think we can hide our sin from God in the darkness. We love our sin rather than God. We always think that we're righteous in our own eyes. We don't fear God. We do not cry out to him. And we're going to see all of those themes, just like we saw in Cain, in this passage. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Look at the grace in that statement. Jesus is offering light instead of stumbling in the darkness. They no longer will have to hide from God. Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Just like our ancestors. They're choosing the lie rather than the truth. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now notice there, Jesus is practicing the presence of the Father. Now this is the part that has significance for our discussion today regarding the two seeds. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. Now make no mistake about it. Jesus just claimed to be divine. 
Ordinarily, Jesus would have been stoned for blasphemy by saying such a thing in the temple. And John just explained why he wasn't, because it was not his time yet. Verse 21, so he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? And here's our two-seed concept. And he said to them, you are from, above, from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I have told you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to them, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. Again, what is Jesus doing? Practicing the presence of the Father. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Unlike the Pharisees who are right in their own eyes and have no fear of God, Jesus is always practicing the presence of the Father. He is always doing his deeds in the open. He is always communicating what must be done and warning of the consequence. And because of this, there is hope. There is light and life. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed him. That is the difference in the two seeds, those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. It has nothing to do with your bloodline or your obedience to the law. You are either a disciple of Jesus or you are a slave to sin. You are either adopted into the family of God or Satan is your daddy. This is vitally important. Look at this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's what we saw in Genesis 4, isn't it? The continuous repetition of sin, of sin, of sin, being trapped and enslaved. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I am not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He, has, he was a murderer from the beginning 
and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And just like we read earlier, the last a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter 1, they call what is good evil next in the next verse. And Jesus is getting ready to, to talk about the fact that he existed even before Abraham. That is monumental. Now, we've yet to get to the story of Abraham in Genesis, which is why we'll need to return to this passage in the near future. But the works of Abraham in verse 39 are not works of the law. There was no law before Abraham, only acts of faith. The work of Abraham is faith in God. Abraham preceded the law, and Jesus preceded Abraham. Everything we have just read in Genesis 3 and 4 is about who has authority, who has control, who gets to determine men and women's destiny. Sin-induced rebellion against God. And every act of rebellion essentially is in its form is, I don't trust you, God. I only trust myself. That is the philosophy of what Satan keeps sowing. And when you do not trust God, you become Satan's seed, even when you're self-righteous. And yet Jesus comes to bring light. And what is that light? Believe in me. Believe I am sufficient for your life. Believe I and the Father are one. Believe that when I am lifted up, I will take away your sin. One of the beautiful things in each of the stories that we've read about, when Adam and Eve sin, when Cain sins, and even here when the Pharisees sin, God comes to them to offer them repentance. So the question remains for you, friend. Are you of the seed of the woman or of the seed of the serpent? The seed of the woman relies upon the promises of God. That offspring believes every word from God is true and good. The seed of the serpent is a slave to sin. That offspring continues to believe, I can manage. I can do this myself. I can get by. I can do what I want to do and be happy. If you want to move from the seed of the serpent to the seed of the woman, then you do what Jesus says here in John 8, verse 24. Believe that he is the only one that can save you from your sins. Don't put trust in yourself. Don't put trust thinking that you can be good enough. Don't be... But trust in thinking that, that somehow, some way, God's just going to be lenient. I have no fear of him like Cain. Believe in Christ. Put your trust in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I do pray in the weakness of, of, of who I am, of what I have just preached, that I have at least been able to communicate that none of us are sufficient to stand before you on our own. That all of us, Lord, resemble 
Cain. That all of us, Lord, think we, what we do is right in our own eyes. We have no fear of you. We don't practice the presence of you being around us all the time. And we show no remorse when we commit sin. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would do, as I prayed earlier, that you would give us clean hands and a pure heart, that you would renew a right spirit in us, and that you would allow us to to have the veil removed, and we see that our only hope is Jesus. And that we would do, just as, as we've been seeing these warnings throughout Scripture in Genesis, when Jesus said, believe in me, or you will die in your sins, that we will believe, that we will trust, that we won't result to, resort to the consequences of that, but that we would put our hope in Christ alone and what he did for us on the cross. And so, Lord, allow us that no matter where we are, what station we are in life right now, allow us, Lord, to, to not fall back into our own self-righteousness, to not think that we can just clean our act up, but that we would continue day by day to live in the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing that Christ alone is sufficient. We pray, Lord, that this would be our gospel hope in our conversations with others, in our thought life before we go to bed, and how we interact with you, that the reason we're here, the reason we can come before you is through your son, Jesus. We pray this in his finished work alone. Amen.